Hi there, Neil here. Obviously, you love to travel. That's why you're listening to this podcast. Circa, our app available right now from the App Store on iOS, is filled with podcasts and guides for travelers. But more than that, it has a feature that we're calling the Circa Concierge, where you can have any question about any place you're traveling answered by real people on the ground. We're giving you a friend to ask anywhere in the world. And hey, if you've got questions about Barcelona, you might even get me. Because I love to help people discover my city. And if you're the same way for the city where you live, then we want you to become part of the Circa Concierge too. Right now, we're searching for concierges in Barcelona, Rome, London, Paris, Madrid, Venice, and New York City. Don't see your city listed? That's okay. We'll be rolling out new cities throughout the year, and yours might just be next. If you love where you live and love to help travelers, sign up now to be a Circa Concierge. Help out our users and earn tips for the knowledge you have about your own city or country. Head over to circatravel.com forward slash concierge and sign up today. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Do you need to acknowledge this? Yeah. <laughs> we might have to acknowledge that we're in a weird room. We're basically, we broke into a flat in order to do this last episode. <laughs> Just, that's what it comes down to. It's the uncomfortable truth. <laughs> One of many in this episode. <laughs> we figured we figure if out we're going to gonna do the Australia episode, we should break into a flat yeah. and claim it as our own. <laughs> oh. Passport gets political. <laughs> Here we go. A destination isn't always a place. Sometimes it's a new way of seeing things. I'm Neil Innes. And I'm Andres Bartos. From Frequency Machine, this is Passport. Your ticket to everywhere. Australia's First Nation Indigenous people are the oldest living culture on Earth. They were also arguably the world's first astronomers. Their complex knowledge and beliefs about the cosmos evolved over tens of thousands of years. It's an integral part of their culture, a part that's been expressed and shared through song, dance, and storytelling. It's also in constant threat of disappearing. Creation stories about the origins of the universe form the basis for cosmological knowledge in different cultures all over the globe. Mayan Mesomythology in the Mexican Yucatan, the ancient Egyptians and polytheism, Taoism in China, all across the planet, different cultures have scribed, etched, and spoken about their mythological interpretations on life and how we came to be here. For part two of our deep dive down under, and our season finale, we're going to explore Australia's original creation myth, Dreamtime, the embodiment of Aboriginal culture. The origins of life, religion, spirituality, and natural law is understood by these people in a very unique way. But wherever there's a myth and legend embedded in a tale of creation, chances are it's going to have some kind of existential slant attached to it. In Western culture, creation stories find their roots in religion and tradition, with some serious polarity. Good versus evil, night and day, the Big Bang, and everything that came after. In these stories, you'll often find a cosmos-centric theme that describes the ordering of the universe out of varying degrees of chaos. It's the same for the Australian indigenous communities. 
the country's first nation people who roamed these lands long before European settlers landed there in 1788. They view the creation myths and interpretations of where life began through a lens known as dreaming, the beginning of knowledge. And in any decent creation story, there's a destruction story. And one particularly dramatic phenomena that stirs more fear and more questions than most Asteroids. Do these big lumps of nickel and iron really hold the keys to our relationship with the universe? It seems we're not the only ones keen to find out. Today on Passport for our season finale, we're returning to Australia, the home of the world's oldest asteroid crater, the Yarrabubba in Western Australia, for a little dream time. Asteroids. A problem? Yes or no? (laughs) (laughs) Looking into this, there's just this huge level of awe. You know, it's the ultimate reminder, isn't it, of just how quickly we could get wiped out. Mm. Yeah, the fear versus, I don't know, curious intrigue about the fact that, yeah, there's a big old lump of nickel and iron that's could be coming towards us at any moment. And just scars like all over the planet. The Yucatan one that wiped out the dinosaurs, where if you you dig into the ground, you'll find a layer where that happened. Yeah. Yeah. You can see it marked into (laughs) Earth. Yeah. Ciao, Dino. Yeah. 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 I do think about them a lot. Up there. It's but in it's in the it's in the zeitgeist, right? Is. In terms of films and it's always there was the most a, ridiculous there was films. a burst of really great asteroid films in the mid nineties. Yeah, what like Deep Impact? Yeah, Armageddon, Armageddon which has the um, the best worst product placement before he goes to because they have to fly onto the asteroid and place mm. a bomb. Is that the pl- premise? They like drill into the center of it and put a bomb inside. Put a bomb, it, yeah. But before he leaves, him and his girlfriend are playing with animal crackers. And he's like walking like a tiger on her body or something. It's supposed to be really sexy, but it's just not. <laughs> What's the product placement for? Lego? Animal no, crackers. for animal crackers. It's very memorable. Jen plays a different version of Nine and a Half Weeks. <laughs> it's like the entire Lego Millennial Falcon. <laughs> he's, just, he's just building, he's building a spaceship on Where's her. Where's that Lego <laughs> I think it would have been a better better scene, to be honest. Jen, have you got any more long, flat ones? Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Could you move your leg? You're on the instructions. Oh, oh God damn, this is going to be the weirdest fucking episode ever. <laughs> For Australia's indigenous people... The stars are a map of human existence. They hold many, many different spiritual and mythological stories. In Australia, there are around 145 indigenous tribes in both rural and urbanized parts of the country. There was once 500, more than a million people prior to colonization by the British. Today, their language, customs, and traditions are all still very much under threat. The Aboriginal people have a complex genetic history, and only in the last 200 years has the country's Aboriginal population started to self-identify as a single group. But each tribe are notably distinct, with their own languages, their own stories, and their own customs. We spoke to Dwayne Hamaker again. Dwayne works with elders all across Australia and the Torres Strait to record, preserve, and amplify the knowledge and science that the indigenous people hold about the cosmos. There are a lot of ways that the traditions can lead us to areas where there are new impacts, where there are meteorites or you know, information about tsunamis or volcanic eruptions or supernova or, or things of that nature. So it's a great way for those two worlds to kind of come together and help each other out a little bit. The idea that ancient oral traditions shared by indigenous elders can shine a light on natural phenomena like volcanoes, tsunamis, and meteorites, it's intriguing. But are scientists really on board with this? In cases where the indigenous stories 
are sort of consistent with the Western scientific explanations, uh, some people have been quick to say, oh, well, it must have been the influence of Western science on whatever people or cultures have that story. And that's it's really problematic because it's sort of implying that people who witnessed events wouldn't have been able to pass that down in oral tradition, which isn't the case because we have a much better understanding of orality because we've learned from the elders. Australia's Indigenous Aboriginals are no strangers to having their understanding of life and how they live it repressed, stamped out, forgotten. Researching this episode got us a lot closer to the very real wounds that remain open in a country that refuses to honour its remaining Indigenous population. Duane is one of the many determined to blow open the westernised colonial assumptions about ancient Aboriginal wisdom. Indigenous peoples around the world are just as smart as anybody else, of course. They may describe it in different terms. They may have a spiritual element to it. But if you just say, oh, well, you know, if they're talking about, you know, deities or spirits, we just have to throw the whole thing out. You're kind of throwing the baby out with bathwater. What gets taught and passed down by elders in each of Australia's estimated 145 tribes is called dreaming a term that describes the Aboriginal social and physical cosmology. A big part of dreaming focuses on the night sky and how life came to be. Dwayne's got a great creation story up his sleeve, and weirdly, it involves Morgan Freeman. What I can speak to are the places like Norla. This is um, known in Western science as Goss's Bluff Crater. It's a giant impact crater in the central desert, west of Alice Springs. I went out, I've been out there a couple of times, and this is in Western Aranda country. And, and one custodian named Warren Williams, he and I filmed part of the segment for the National Geographic documentary series, Story of God with Morgan Freeman. And it was on the episode on creation. This part of Australia, the Northern Territories, has no shortage of impact sites or impact structures. All of them are considered places of great reverence for the indigenous communities and the elders that live here. The, the Aranda people have these traditions about how the crater formed, basically a, a star baby in a cradle fell out of the Milky Way because the, the mother set it down while she was dancing a corroboree. And it fell down to the ground and, and when it hit the ground, it drove the rocks upwards and the the cradle that it was in fell on top of it, obscuring the baby. So the baby's parents, the morning and the evening star, you know, to this day are just taking turns back and forth trying to find their lost child. In this creation story, there's a blend of science, law, and spirituality coexisting side by side. It kind of seemed like one of these stories parents tell their kids not to, you know, don't go running out around the bush at night because it's dangerous, you know, you find lots of these examples and this is what the elders tell me. But it wasn't so much a place to be feared, but it was a place of extreme reverence and, and a very special sacred sort of a place in the landscape. And it was one of the, the great places where the indigenous story and the Western science explanation married very closely. You'll find many asteroid craters and impact sites in this enormous country, where meteors smashed into the Earth millions of years ago. Of the 190 craters and impact sites confirmed worldwide, some 30 or more craters are located in Australia, with many more in the process of being studied and confirmed as we speak. There's frequent discoveries of new partially or completely buried craters or impact structures often found by mining or oil companies who drill in the remote, golden-rich soils of the Western Outback. Just last year, in 2020, two major craters were discovered. The Yarrabubba Crater, located near Mikathara in Western Australia's Midwest, was found to be around 2.2 billion years old. The impact may have catapulted our planet out of an ice age. The second, jaw-dropping for its size and the fact that it was totally buried from view, was discovered by a gold mining company and the help of electromagnetic surveying near the historic gold fields and mining town of Orabanda, northwest of the Kalgoorlie border. At five kilometers across, it's believed to be five times bigger than the infamous Wolf Creek found due northwest in the wild and rugged Kimberley region of Western Australia. 
Here, in this area of the country, saltwater crocodiles, or salties as they're known, are the biggest reptiles on the planet. Attacks on unsuspecting tourists or those sleeping in tents near the riverbank are on the rise. You're picturing it right. This is Crocodile Dundee country. Yeah, that's the Kim. That's the Kimberley. It's lovely. You've been there. Mm. We parked the car and walked a path to somewhere to swim. I can't remember the name of the place. Mm-hmm. And um, there was kind of like these. They call them woggles in Australia. They're like, what's up with the woggles? <laughs> I know the names. They're they're walking direction signs. Okay. So like, and you can kind of work out if you've gone the wrong way by. Well, the wrong way around, it was a clockwise route because we had to keep looking behind us to see if we were still going in the right direction because right. the woggles were on the other side of the trees. We got a half-hour walk. We got to this watering hole, went swimming, had a fun time, jumping off the waterfall, lay down in the sun for a bit, walked out of the, this little area of the watering hole, started looking behind us for the, for the woggles. The first time we looked back, there was just like a huge metal sign with like no swimming crocodile, <laughs> crocodile attacks. <laughs> it's like it was like absolutely no swimming. Yeah, girls in the Kimberley, yeah. Yeah. and we just been there for like an hour, like just. <laughs> <laughs> so always go the right way on the route. Yep. <laughs> but isn't it nice to swim in crocodile-infested water when it's, you don't know that they're yes, crocodile and get away with it? It was nice afterwards. We're heading into the world of like where the intersection of fiction and nonfiction cross. Like, yeah, where movies and our reality are starting to, you know, jive with each other. Should we go there? Let's go there. We'll be back after the break with volcanologist Clive Oppenheimer and the one and only Werner Herzog. And much, much more. Hi, everyone. Circa's recruiting new concierges. A Circa concierge is a friend to ask anywhere in the world. Real people, on the ground, never bots. If you want to be a concierge for your city, go to circatravel.com to sign up. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Wolf Creek, or Candy Mallow as it's known, by the Australian Aboriginals, is one impact structure that's received a lot of the world's attention, and not just for the 2005 horror movie that's named after it. Scrawlings of murder-themed graffiti left by movie fans can be found on abandoned buildings in the desert close to the crater. Fortunately, that's not why we're here. Nor is it the reason German film director and relentless pursuer of ecstatic truth Werner Herzog came here to direct a film about meteorites. Together with volcanologist Clive Oppenheimer, they made their second film together late last year, Fireball, Visitors from Dark Worlds. Their first filmmaking collaboration was 2016's Into the Inferno. Both movies delve into a theme that's a constant in Herzog's work. Man's relationship to nature and its utter indifference to us. We caught up with Werner and Clive right before the movie's late 2020 release. Nobody of them ever speaks of dying of cultures, dying of languages, and that's what I feel as a deep void and as a gap. And people always stare at me with big eyes and and they think, what is he talking about? That laconic and instantly recognizable voice one of the world's greatest living film directors, philosophers, and a true original. So I'm talking about some roughly 6,500 languages that are left on this planet. And every 10 days, one is dying forever, disappears, many of them undocumented. 
And it is, it is a tragedy and a catastrophe. The exploitation of tribes and the death of language came up immediately when we started to chat. No more language, no more culture. The last Russian speaker that dies, no more Tolstoy, no more Akhmatova, no more Mandelstam, no more uh, Tchaikovsky. And that's the magnitude of what is happening. You see it among Aborigines in, in a particular dramatic way because their languages are disappearing fast. We had about the estimates about 300 Aboriginal languages when the uh, Brits uh, settled the continent. And today it's only 40 or 50 left. The question of language and preserving it is central to the conversation about Aboriginal creation stories and vital when it comes to telling the truth about Australia's colonised version of these stories. Language is rarely lost at random. What's fascinating about the Indigenous of Australia is their approach to truth. Herzog famously argues that facts do not constitute the truth. So too, do the indigenous dance around the edges of how us Westerners measure truth. Data here is not the be-all and end-all. When it comes to meteorites and their symbolism, there are many variations of mythological stories attached to them, and none are more or less true than the next. They're an omen for sickness and death for the Tanganakal people of South Australia. Their portents of war, if you speak with the indigenous up in Australia's eastern Queensland state. And they're also connected to initiation rituals and medicine men amongst the Aboriginal people of New South Wales. Different tribes found different meanings from the same cosmological phenomena. In Wolf Creek Crater, or Kandimalal as it's known by the Aboriginal Jaru people, on the edge of Australia's great sandy desert, has no shortage of mythology attached to it. I think it was Clive Oppenheimer's decision or a proposal, and we discussed various other uh, meteorite impact sites in Australia, but this was obviously the most uh, um, cinematic one. Candy Malau was formed by a giant meteorite that crashed into the Earth 300,000 years ago. The 50,000-ton meteorite hit the Earth at 15 kilometres a second, leaving behind a huge extraterrestrial dent that's clearly visible from space. There's a watering hole in the middle, which the local Jaru people believe is where a rainbow serpent called Kariputa fell in from the sky and then came up from the ground, pushing the Earth to form the crater rim. We have accepted that as an explanation for the Creek crater is... Simply, it was a rainbow serpent that fell down from the skies and landed there. And of course, a totem, uh, a totemistic kind of creature. And, and these totems are agents that uh, place man within the dream time or within dreaming and thus providing uh, man with an indestructible identity. So... Yes, I can accept that. And, and there is something which uh, is their truth. And I marvel at it and I accept it and I feel enriched. Their truth enriches Western understanding of Aboriginal culture as much as the place and the event. There's an incredible scene in Werner's movie when Clive Oppenheimer chats with an indigenous artist that lives in the desert town of Bililula, close to Kandimalal, Wolf Creek. Her name is Katie Darkey. She captures the stories of her ancestors with vivid, vibrant images using a signature small dot technique typical to much Aboriginal artwork. Her paintings crisscross these stories and song lines, and they all have their own sense of truth to them. I actually bought the, the image that Katie Darkey, this wonderful woman artist, and, uh, and I asked her, it was actually in a gallery already exhibited, and I asked her whether I could buy it from her, and she was very proud, and I bought it. I never buy any, I've never bought a, a, a picture. I have maps on my, on my wall, or I do have uh, photos sometimes on my wall, but that's about it. Never a painting in my life. That's the only one I ever acquired. For volcanologist and co-director of Fireball, Clive Oppenheimer, 
Candy Mallow is a confluence of interests and energies that mingle the spiritual, the endangered cultural, and of course, the scientific discoveries that deeper explorations of the crater have since provided. It's an intersection of a lot of things, that's for sure. I guess, I mean, for the Europeans, it was only, this, this was cattle country on the, on the beef, beef road, and, and the cattle didn't stray up to these low, dry hills that surround the crater. So nobody actually, none, none of the Europeans recognised it. So it was only spotted from the air by some geologists in 1947. And, and then there was an expedition and they found fragments of iron meteorites, so, which confirmed its extraterrestrial origin. So that, that scientific story is obviously a very recent story in, in comparison with its significance in the dreaming, its significance spiritually and in terms of, of the ancestral and sacred meaning of, of the landscape there. But then the other side of this story, of course, is, is the loss of culture. And you know, not even as recently as 100 years ago, there were still massacres in this area. So, so there's also that, that kind of tragic aspect to that, that whole situation and that, that region. Two lovely, very lovely, very different voices. But Clive Oppenheimer's voice should be as famous as Werner Herzog's. <laughs> Yeah, it's soothing, isn't it? It's very, like, a, like you said, he's very nice, reassuring. Yeah. Maybe the guy that you'd want to kind of to go, there's a rather large asteroid coming. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, some would say, imminent. Take some deep breaths. <laughs> yeah, it was really nice to talk to him. Oh, so I had serious interview jealousy when I was look, trapped in the little booth. <laughs> looking through the glass and seeing the back of both of your heads and Werner Herzog's face on the screen. I was like, what are they talking about? <laughs> was that a case of FOMO this year? Totally. In the year where there's nothing to FOMO, you FOMO'd. Pretty surreal experience. Yeah, must have, I mean, he's one of your... Absolutely. But I couldn't even think about that because it was just like, how do we get this man to talk about Australia? Yeah, and keep the him whole on track. Time, the whole time was just like, how are we going to drag him back from Chaucer? <laughs> <laughs> the movie Fireball itself has this incredible thing, which is something that was trying to come out in this episode, this, this kind of broader question about how science can benefit from being a little more porous or letting other knowledge into it somehow also the danger in that or how do you manage that how how do you let science live with uh poetry or literature yeah how can spirit and science coexist without that duality the both of them decide to make a movie about volcanoes to make a movie about killer asteroids it's that sort of because no matter how you think of them on scientific terms they are you know world enders it's inherent in it that the apocalypse or end of the world is mythic because we've never known it (laughs) (laughs) tapping into the wisdom and the 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 knowledge of the indigenous that 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 will definitely serve science and i think that's opening up i think that kind of collaboration is definitely from what the guys said is happening but i think it's a it requires a huge shift in mindset Mm, historical stories or tribal stories or oral stories that have been passed down they should be like anything in science or in art where it's an opening to think about all of those things yeah and in thinking about all of those things in a broader way then you've got more opportunity to measure and to do all of the scientific things but you know, they're going to open more doors for you than they are going to close. So shut the fuck up for a while and listen to what the old guy around the campfire has to say a little bit. You know, it's good for everybody. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land and Australia does not exist. That is a statement. And this is Jesse Ferrari an ethnoecologist and member of the Yorta Yorta tribe in the state of Northern Victoria on the east coast of the country. I wanted to pay respects to the Wurundjeri people whose lands I live on. I'm a guest on their land. Their land was stolen and their sovereignty was never ever ceded. And I wish to honour their continual connection to land, sky and seas and pay respect to the elders past, present and emerging 
and to the ancestors who fought and died to protect their people, their land and their way of life. She is adamant and right that what the country needs is more than half-baked attempts at apologies for what happened before. It needs to be faced. For her, these wounds are ever-present and ongoing. Yeah, like Australia was never built and made for us. It was always made to exclude us. Um, And that's why it's really important that we have treaty so that we can actually give ourselves agency and we can actually go about determining our own future and what we want. Because I think the real problem with white Australia trying to come in and play white saviour and trying to come in and fix it, not realising that they, even if they have good intentions, that they're actually doing more damage because they're paternalising us and they're not really having dialogue with us. Australia has many different state treaties under negotiation, but nothing has come of it. Nothing has passed in government. There is a Reconciliation Act that contains initiatives to weave Indigenous culture and learnings into the mainstream education system. Jesse, like so many other Indigenous across the country, rightly believes that there's a lot more to be done. It's definitely important that we have Indigenous culture um, in the curriculum and every facet of it, not just in humanities, well, not just in history, that we have it in science, we have it in every facet that we that we expose children to this, like everyone to it and gain an appreciation in terms of the Reconciliation Act. Clearly, it's a step in the right direction, but shamefully overdue. Bringing Indigenous culture into schools, but also the, and close, the, med, the medical closer gap. A lot of schools in like states like Victoria, and I think also... Uh, Western Australia and parts of New South Wales, a lot of them are bringing elders into the school, like elders from that are traditional owners of that land, uh, bringing them in and having them teach children, uh, whether they're elementary or tertiary level, about Indigenous history and culture and even language and teaching things like dreamtime stories. For Jessie, her learnings about the laws and lessons of dreaming came from the elders in the Yorta Yorta tribe which are found in the subtropical climes of Australia's east coast. My culture is built upon, it's built upon touch and and sight and smell. And that's our classroom. It's not just the physical thing, it's also spiritual and ancestral thing. It's a sense of belonging. Elders are like the backbone of our community. They're the knowledge keepers. They're the keeper of law. They're keepers of the dreaming. And so it's very important in my culture that you give them the utmost respect and when they speak, that we listen. They're very, very important. Madeline Anderson is no stranger to the feeling of not belonging in her own country. I'm a descendant of the Ewood people and, and my ancestors have travelled through this area for a very long time. She works as a community liaison officer for an Aboriginal corporation, one that bridges the world of corporate interest and cultural preservation. She is also a descendant of the Uid people and is possibly the only person we've ever interviewed that lives in a 75 million year old asteroid structure, the Yalali Basin Crater. Located between Mura and Bajingara in the world-renowned stargazing territory that is the Western Wheat Belt, the impact date of the Yalali Basin Crater is estimated to be somewhere between 83 to 89 million years ago. We have had conversations, well, I've had conversations with elders and um, Aboriginal representatives across the Noongar Nation about significant places for the Noongar people. And there were elders who were uh, sharing knowledge around uh, about the song lines. Song lines are very specific creation storylines that cross the country and put all geographical and sacred sites in place in Aboriginal culture. They're a map. One of the song lines that came from the northern part of, the, of WA they travelled through this area, through this crater, and out to the coast and back in again. The ancestors journeyed across country, learning and using these songs. In 
In Aboriginal culture, these ancestral sacred stories are passed on as large song cycles. People would then specialize in chapters or sections of a songline, which tells the entire creation story as it relates to a particular piece of land. People on the neighboring land would then write the next chapters of what happened to the ancestors as they crossed over into their own part of the country. For me, it's very um, like empowering and moving to know that this is where my people traveled in a huge learning journey, but uh, we are certainly on a very, very significant sacred place and um, I'm living on it. It makes me think that for today's Australian Aboriginals, returning to these kind of sites, never mind living on one of them, must feel like coming home. For me, it's encouraged me more to have these conversations and really strengthen the community ties and looking at opportunities on how we can work together and bring people back on country where you can feel that sense of belonging and, and to come here and heal. The resilience and simple gut intuition that led her right back to her origins is mind-blowing. For me, it was just being who I, who I am and just say it how it is in a respectful way where we can build those relationships and share more about, you know, our connections to this place, share more about our pain. As a mother in her 30s with kids, Madeline is also keen to share that same sense of reverence and awe with them and to keep these mythologies alive. Sometimes she and her children go and sit out with the elders underneath the Milky Way. Being out under the night sky especially when you're right away from all the city lights, any light really, and you can just see that wide open sky and you can see the Milky Way. And it is, though, it is that time where you're sitting down over the yarn with your elders. You're not only hearing the stories about the night sky, stories of creational time, how people traveled using the stars and how we have to care for the land. We don't own the land, we have to look after the land. Madeline inspires me for so many reasons. For trusting her gut and returning to her roots. For the ability to be a conduit for her community to protect the land. And for demanding a seat at the table with Australia's oil and coal corporations. She's kind of a living example of an Aboriginal who embodies the values and laws about community and preserving the land. The ones written in the country's indigenous cultural astronomy for tens of thousands of years. Every time I do the boundary checks on this property, I just, I tend to take a very long time to return back to the homestead because I'm always drawn down to that basin. I, I used to sit hours with my grandmother just sitting there quietly. We don't have to talk. It's yeah. just, you're just being absorbed into the land. But absolutely with that crater here, there's something, there's something, something completely different, something magical about it. This idea of an unspoken knowing a feeling deeply felt by the Indigenous about what came before and what's always been is something that's been inferred by quite a few of the people who've helped us write this episode. A remembrance of sorts, a been-here-before type certainty that the Indigenous don't need factual evidence or complex scientific studies to justify. Often, the stars may give clues that the Aboriginals accept as a kind of cosmic signalling. Here's Duane the astronomer and professor of cultural astronomy that we heard from before. One experience that I had that will always stay with me was in 2012, I was in Kakadu. Kakadu National Park in Australia's Northern Territory features the Yellow Water Billabong, its most famous wetland. It's located at the end of Jim Jim Creek, a tributary of the South Alligator River. And my wife at the time and I both of us astronomers were working with a touring agency there to develop a night sky tour. So we went out there as consultants and helped them set up this astronomy program, which included a bit of Western astronomy and, and indigenous astronomy. And most of the tour guides there are local Aboriginal Gagaju people. The river system, which is the largest in Kakadu, contains extensive wetlands that include river channels, floodplains, and backwater swamps. And one of the last nights that we were there, uh, we had everybody out on one of the boats with the top off 
and we were talking about different elements of the sky and, and, and we saw two shooting stars go past one right after the other. I didn't say anything because I remembered, I you know, wrote a few papers on this. So I had a little bit of an idea that that referred to death. I didn't say anything, but one of the Gagaju guides, he didn't, he didn't make light of it. He said, oh yeah, you know, in our traditions, that means somebody's passed away. Seeing a shooting star meant someone's spirit was passing safely over into the next life. We continued on with the evening. The next day, we had one final sort of session to wrap things up, but nobody was there. We're like, what's going on? So I went over to the manager's office and I'm like, where, where the hell is everybody? Like, we've got, our, this is our final day, we've got some important stuff to talk about. He says, oh, all the, all the crew, they're, they're dealing with sorry business right now. Two elders passed away last night. I just remember this, this almost sinking feeling like, oof, wow, okay, you know. It was just one of those events that I'm, I'm never, I'm never going to forget that. Death, rebirth, rainbow serpents, premonitions, stories. And of course, signposts in the cosmos for climate, ecology, navigation, and animal migration patterns. The skies of Australia hold the keys to so much of what's been distorted, or silenced on the ground. Spirit, culture, science, all polished, cleaned up, colonialized. Just like asteroids and the scars they etch on our gutsy little planet, the Australian Aboriginals, the oldest continuous culture on Earth, are the ultimate testament to resilience. They're the humblest of warriors, the real stewards of the land. Well, goddamn, son. <laughs> what else are you going to say to that? That's right. It's come up several times this whole season. For some reason, we have this kind of obsession with the sky. In the end, where I'm kind of landing on it today is this feeling like, you know, when you lose the connection to the sky or the you lose connection to the earth and then you stop having this sense of where you actually are. You forget how insignificant you are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And how, how yeah. special you are at the I, same I, time. I, like, I don't know. It's such a crossing of like the country that I was brought up in and, and the stars and space and things that I like truly love that I learned a lot about growing up. But the one thing that I should have been learning about that I have no idea about is kind of the thing that like really woke me up because <laughs> it is a it yeah. is a phenomenally complex ball of to disentangle and yeah you know try and make sense of but at the same time like is that the you know the reason or the excuse to not try it's always the same baseline bullshit mm -hmm. excuse it just makes me so sad that i just did not know any of this the thing is it's what you're saying is like you're actually not just denying other people you're actually denying yourself yeah yeah it's something that has more depth yeah. and has you know value uh, yeah. whatever you want to call it yeah you can't sidestep history so comfortably yeah no yeah. whether you're on whatever side of history you're on right it's it comes out like the the craters get revealed the yeah. marks on the earth get revealed all that stuff comes out you can't you know you yeah. can pile as much dirt on top it's of it. It's a great metaphor, yeah. The truth's the truth is coming out. Yeah. yeah. Um, I just I just went I I just said which is a very Australian thing to say, which is yeah, nah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which, which which means which, what? Which is like yes, I agree with what you're saying. No, I'm not going to do anything with it and let's just carry on. That's the whole Australian ethics for everything. <laughs> It's a very much a deflection tool as well. Yes, yeah, right. exactly. Absolutely. So it's to have a certain kind of conversation, you kind of have to put that away, and that's almost the hardest yeah, thing. Yeah, drop the nationalism. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but no, but yeah. <laughs> okay, guys, get your didgeridoo, your infrared binoculars, and your camera ready. We're about to go walk about under Australia's brilliant skies. Here are our last saved pins of the year in Australia. Number one is the Western Australia's Wheatbelt and Midwest. Between one and two hours drive from Perth, 
that guarantees deep, dark night stargazing with an easy reach from the bright city lights. On a moonless night, you can see the Milky Way galaxy stretch across the night sky. It's unbelievable. Number two, Inside Australia, outdoor permanent exhibition at Lake Ballard. The stars over Turner Prize winning Anthony Gormley's spindly sculptures on the lake bed will take your breath away. It's located in the middle of Yilgarn Craton, which is between 2.9 and 3.5 billion years old. Basically, one of the oldest bits of the Earth's surface. Number three. That's the GDC Observatory in Yale, Western Australia. The observatory is situated at Yale between Yanchep National Park and the township of Jinjin. The GDC Observatory is part of the Gravity Precinct and shares this pristine bushland with the Gravity Discovery Center, AIGO Research Center, and the famous Zadko Telescope. Book one of the Aboriginal Astronomy Night Sessions where a local elder shares dreamtime stories that you'll then see played out in the night sky. Number four, the Pinnacles in Namburg National Park. Discover these weird limestone formations along the Indian Ocean Drive on the Coral Coast. If you're a budding astrophotographer, there's plenty of scope to take some unique photography. Under moonlight, the shapes of the Pinnacles cast incredible shadows. Number five. Candy Malal, Wolf Creek Crater National Park, Great Sandy Desert. If you're up in Australia's northwestern Kimberley region, don't miss a trip to the famed Candy Malal Crater. Located 154 kilometers south of Halls Creek, along the Tanami Road, it's best to come in a four-wheel drive, or better still, arrange to do a scenic flyover to get the full perspective of this famous cosmic scar that dates back hundreds of thousands of years. Flights can be booked in the tourism office in Halls Creek. To say something about this crazy year that's ended and this crazy year that started and now, you know, kind of closing up this flurry of stories that we've done. On one hand, I'm kind of nervous that I'm not going to have this that we've had right here. These moments of like sitting down with people and listening and then chatting has kind of i don't know it's been like a safe space i know man from this pandemic hopefully that's what we've done for people listening as well i hope hope so i I hope hope so too even if we can't quite find the words to wrap up an episode which we always you know we have we have kind of trouble finding a place to to land Hmm with some of these things which are really difficult to kind of you know unpick but that's kind of what it makes us it, that's what travel that's what yeah, traveling is supposed to be it's not neatly tied up bow is it yeah and it has just been incredible we've got to go to a different place every I single think. week which is what everybody on earth has wanted to do for this whole last year and hopefully now in this 2021 that is not on on the best start necessarily <laughs> it's kind of <laughs> testing the waters it's already wobbled but um hopefully you know we're gonna be opening up into a new world no I don't. <laughs> so first episode of season two will be the factory that made neil's bluetooth device i want to find the the woman that did the voiceover. Yeah, she's going to be our cold open. We need to open. find her. And we need to be like, okay, I just have a couple of phrases I want you to say. Can you say? A destination isn't always a place. Sometimes it's a new way of seeing things. It's been a great year, guys. <laughs> Take care of yourselves out there. It's been rough. Try to take any moment you can to look at the sky yeah and dust off your passport because you will need to use it again at some point very soon yeah keep looking up that's it for this week guys and for this season It's been a total joy taking you along with us in this very strange time for travel. Hopefully, we've satisfied a little bit of that craving. As always, head to FrequencyMachine.com forward slash passport 
For all news and info, enter social media at Passport Podcast and on Instagram at Passport Pod. We'll be back soon with season two of the show, and who knows where we'll be headed. Well, we do know, but we might save that as a surprise. So keep an eye on the feed in the interim for a season two trailer and more news from us. So thanks to everyone who has made the season possible, and thanks for listening and coming with us. This week's episode of Passport was written and produced by Jennifer Carr and edited by me and Andres Bartos. Huge thanks to Dwayne Hamaker, Carol Redford, Lloyd Hornsby, Marnie Og, Jesse Ferrari, Trevor Lehman, Madeline Anderson, Werner Herzog, Clive Oppenheimer, and Isaac Davidson from Apple for all of their kind help making these episodes. All info on these amazing people in the show notes. Our theme music is by the incredible Nick Turner, additional music by the indigenous peoples of Australia, and from the original soundtrack for Fireball, which is amazing and available now on Apple. The show is mixed and mastered by Julian Kuzneski. Our production assistant is Eliza Engel. Jennifer Carr, Harriet Davies, Harry Stop, Billy Craig and Toon, Darren Lucades, and Aisha Prigan have made this whole year not only possible, but impressionable. It's a joy to know all of you and to hear your stories always. Special thanks to everyone who has supported us through the ACAST supporter feature. Big thanks, Meredith, Sam, Lorelei, Emerson23, Owen, Rose, and Nelson. Hey, buddies. Dario, Gen CP, Ring EB, Tom Hessel, Connie, Donna BE, Molly, and Tiru. And to all of the other anonymous people who have donated, couldn't thank you enough. You can support us too by clicking on the link in the show notes. Big thanks for listening and for coming with us this season. Stacey Book, Dominic Ferrari, and Abby Glijanski are all aware that kangaroos have three vaginas. They also executive produce this show, which is hosted by me and a strangely beautiful, cuddly, mono-browed man who always sings in order to remember where he is going, Andres Bartos. Un abrazo fuerte, pendejo. Much love, man. And happy 2021. We'll see you in the next place. Soon. Soon.